to The New Disruptors, a podcast that attempts to provide the kind of insight that's normally found only in a bag of fortune cookies. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Duncan Davidson and Greg Koenig joined forces to start Luma Labs, a firm that makes across-the-chest camera straps. The two collaborated first on Luma Loop, a free-sliding camera strap, and then created Cinch, one that holds a camera tighter but still allows for movement. You know how on this show it's always sunny? Greg and Duncan explain some of the dark skies of the last couple of years and also tell us when the sun will come out again. Welcome to the podcast, Duncan and Greg. Thank you. Hey, thanks. It's so great to have you on because, as you know, I am a multi-year LumaLoop user and I love the thing to pieces. And later in the podcast, you'll explain to me why that love has been justified all this time. But I wanted to start out. You guys both live in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I know, Duncan, you're a world traveler with uh, taking pictures for TED and other conferences, but Portland's home. And I'd like to talk a bit about each of your background because, uh, uh, Duncan, in particular, I know when I met you, you were working for Sun Microsystems and, and on Java. How did you get from Java into photography? Well, I've uh, I've always made photos. My uh, grandparents taught me how to take photos when I was a little kid. I mean, taking me into their dark room, and I learned black and white processing and the whole the whole nine yards. So, you know, as I grew up and as I went into a career in software, the camera stayed with me. It went everywhere. Then, sometime in the mid two thousands, I kind of had an opportunity to do some more shooting professionally. And for better or worse, I jumped at the opportunity, and that took me on kind of a new path, and I started shooting for real. I mean, not really for real. I mean, both amateur and professional shooting is real, but it, it definitely changed the arc of my photography and uh, also affected, the, uh, affected everything. It's, it's interesting to me because I know a number of people who came from a programming background who either always had a love of photography or discovered it and then went on to become, uh, you know, to make it their full-time career. Like Bill Atkinson, one of the people behind the original QuickDraw system on uh, the Macintosh, he is, uh, for many years now, has been a serious professional photographer and has shows and sells his work. There must be some affinity in the brain between programming and composing a scene. Well, I think there is. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things at work here. Programming... Um, when you sit down and write some software, you're applying a highly creative process to a technical problem, right? You've got these very precise ways in which you can deal with the, the, the subject matter at hand. I mean, writing code is very precise. You have to tell the computer what you want it to do, and oftentimes you tell it the wrong thing, and then you get to find that out and fix it. But there's a creative aspect to doing the, that problem solving, and I think it's very similar in photography where... You have the creativity of what you're trying to accomplish, i.e. the image you're trying to make, but then there's this technical aspect of making the camera do that. And I think it syncs up in a way somewhere deep in our heads that's actually, you, you see it a lot. As you said, Bill Atkinson does it, but there's lots of other people who have walked this line between technology and photography, and it's, it's fascinating. It's very interesting to me. I wonder if iteration is part of it, is that programmers, you have to iterate. No one sits down. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are some people we hate who sit down and write software that works the first time, and they don't have to go back and revise it much. But most <laughs> of the time, most programmers, it's about process of iteration and testing and, and figuring out what works and then improving on process. Does that apply to your photography? Oh, too? definitely. I mean, photography is very iterative. You go to anybody's catalog or their archives, and you'll find tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I think I'm way over half a million images in my collection. So that's one level, one scale of iteration. But even on a smaller scale, like when, when I'm at TED photographing a speaker, you know, the speaker is up from anywhere from 5 to 18 minutes, and you know, the, the goal is to get at least 5 or 10 usable shots out of that. And it'll take... 100 or 150 shots to do that because as you're working a scene you kind of check what you're doing or you're thinking about it even if you're not looking at the back of the view at the back of the camera chimping you know you're just looking at the scene through the viewfinder it's a matter of working a scene until you get the right combination of timing composition and what the subject is doing so there it's highly iterative on every level just like code is isn't this the secret of photography, too, that people used to wonder how do people become or get a great shot? It's you take a million shots. You take a lot of shots. The, the 10,000 hour rule applies in the fact that the more time you, <laughs> you, you, you shoot, the better you get. I mean, when I was an amateur, I thought I was pretty good at photography, but, you know, I was pretty good. I could make postcard photos, um, which, you know, some people like, but there is that kind of genre, right? It's you, you get up to a point and you're not going to go much further. 
And once I started doing it professionally and I was shooting for O'Reilly Media and then TED and all these other events, just the sheer amount of time that I had to spend in photography, in the act of making a photo, taught me so much about what, how light works, how people work, how expressions can go across a person's face. And it really is a matter of time in, time in the saddle. Isn't that true of everything, though? What was that? Oh, I mean, iteration. As I, as I go on in life, I've always found all the, the really great things always seem to be the result of iteration. I mean, look at, look at all the prototypes Apple makes for iPhones. They just iterate and hone and they do crazy things like that octagon Battlestar Galactica paper shaped one and <laughs> tablet shaped ones. And they just try it out and they just keep iterating. Oh, I think it's the great secret of, of, of creation though. And this is something I've talked about with many people on this podcast before is, is I think there's a notion by people who aren't in a given field that you make a draft of something and then that's what goes into production. They don't understand. I talked about it once as like the hecatomb that like there's, all, you know, that's a Stephen Jay Gould's notion of evolution is that you have a hundred mutations occur and one of them goes forward and the other 99 are dead, you know, and that's, that's the process here, right? As you go through, Apple doesn't make a hundred, unlike Samsung, uh, sorry, doesn't make <laughs> 150 designs and then produce them all. They make 150 designs or a thousand and they make one. And that applies in photography, industrial design. And, and I think any creative realm is if you're doing it right. I mean, maybe Nikola Tesla might have been the only person who apparently could conceive of something perfectly in his head and then <laughs> build it exactly. But he was a maniac and a genius. And most of us, even if we're smart, we're not, we're no Nikola Tesla. Greg, Tell me about your process of iteration, because you are a man of mystery. You have, you have a very low profile on the interwebs. And so I know you work as an industrial designer. I know you have a tremendously deep materials knowledge. What's your background? How did you come into this collaboration? Uh, this particular collaboration uh, was really simple. We live in the same building. <laughs> and I noticed Duncan. Well, let's go further back. Let's go further back to start with. Are you are you a trained industrial designer? Have you spent your career doing this? Where did you come to get the knowledge that you have? Well, I uh, let's see. I went to design school in California, the California College of Arts and Crafts, and I dropped out after my first year because uh, I found art school really boring. <laughs> it just didn't really interest me, and I. I got these interesting sort of side projects that, that took me away from school and getting my hands on designing things and dealing with design problems really early. And for the most part, I just worked from interesting little design problem to design problem on everything from designing interiors of race cars for a company that, that raced BMWs to uh, doing work for military consultants on how do we make checkpoints in places like Iraq safer for everyone involved. So have you ever worked for a, a giant firm or has it all been contracting work since, since you left college? It's all been contracting work. That's fascinating. I, See, I can't I even this. imagine working for a big company. I'd probably do just terribly. I mean, that's the well, you're, so you're, you're self-made in terms of the career. And so without, you know, having a degree or a formal study, you've picked this all up on the street corner as you've gone, you've taught yourself and, uh, and learned from each project. Absolutely. I mean, every project for me is, is, is a big learning experience, essentially. That's great. And so the so two of you live in the same building. That's funny because, you know, I never heard how you met. And I know that uh, you came together. There's, I think you have an origin story on your website. But, I mean, you should tell the story of how this project, the, the Luma Loop, came about. Well, um, I mean, we'd bounced into each other several times in the building. And, you know, we both have a love of Apple stuff and technology and making things. And over the years in the elevator, you know, oh, have you seen that thing? Oh, have you seen this thing? You know, we we'd built up a friendship. And one day I was talking about camera straps and uh, how most of the camera straps I'd ever played with uh, just didn't do the right thing. I mean, you know, my dirty secret is we have a camera strap company, but I've hated camera straps forever. And of course, as I'm talking through what a, a, what a good camera strap should be, um, Greg pops out with it. Oh, well, you just need a ba da ba da ba da ba da and it'll be easy. And (laughs) the famous, the famous last words of that. But yeah, he had an idea of of how to actually accomplish what needed to be accomplished. So we set out and actually started playing with prototypes and, you know, six months of hacking on webbing and, and playing with various pieces of hardware and spending time with the McMaster car catalog or going to Ace Hardware or, you know, fishing through part bins and kind of seeing what worked and what didn't. Um, We ended up with something that approximated a product. 
And at some point, we decided to try to go ahead and productize it. Greg, let me ask you this. How do you think about these sorts of projects? I'm just curious, like from sort of the maybe the inside outside part, how much of this is James says or Duncan says, uh, Sorry, James. Duncan's first name is actually James. We'll have we'll be confused throughout the podcast. So, Duncan, <laughs> when I met you, you were James. Uh, so, how much yes. is it Duncan's describing this? And does, does an idea pop that's like Tesla? Does an idea pop in your head? You go, oh, you see through this, you cut through it, or is this a thing where you know there's a way to fix this, and it's a process of you sort of drawing out and trying more? I mean, is it is it that instant thing, or is it is it more of a, of a we have to try a million things before um, before I know what's going to work? I generally, I think it's most of a process of thinking, coming in with a really strong opinion and then testing it mm. and finding the limits of it. And I mean, I, I hear this is a big business thing now, but it's something I've thought for a long time, but you try to fail fast and iterate on that. So you don't invest in the things that aren't going to work. You try to, you try to do all the, all the work that would be expensive when in production early on to see what plays out. Not necessarily that. It's that you don't want to waste a lot of time. You don't want to waste a lot of time hacking up prototypes or making SLA models or engaging with suppliers on an idea that just isn't going to work. So it's it's a matter of you know resources and time. And I found the best way to do that is to come up with a concept and implement it as quickly as you can and start seeing what it does. And finding what its limits are and, and whether it works or not. And so you then, started with readily available parts when you were testing this out, things that you could put together uh, quickly. Yeah, I think I started out with some webbing that I bought at the REI, which is on the ground floor of our building. <laughs> and one of those speedy stitch owls, if you've ever seen them, are sort of a, like a handheld thing for sewing. And uh, a lot of hot melt glue. A lot of hot melt a glue. A lot of hot melt glue. <laughs> Our first few straps were actually held together with hot melt glue, and we we had to test them very gingerly. Um, I'm still but, surprised they held as well as they did. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fascinating. Hot melt glue, and then we graduated to staples. Mm. Um, you'd be surprised when you get a stapler out after uh, some pieces of webbing how how good a connection that can make in a pinch. So and that's a very interesting thing because I think uh, I wonder I always wonder about the romance people have in how products are developed. They think of, um, you know, people working with great materials and welding and I don't know, just this sort of um, movie vision of how it goes as opposed to hot glue guns and staples. <laughs> it's hot glue guns and staples. Well, that's great. But I mean, that's, I think that's it is that instead of having to, you didn't need the infrastructure of a giant uh, corporation of a la- like a materials lab and a testing facility to do this, that you could actually get commonly available things to see whether it was worth proceeding and going down the road to make something that was that was more and more like a final product. Well, I mean, in the end, it's it's a camera strap. We're not developing like a medical implant or an airplane. <laughs> so, you know, I can see why Boeing needs to be able to prototype stuff with real materials, and and it takes them a lot to fail fast because what they do is so involved. If you're making a camera strap, though, just just knock it out and start experimenting and then go from there. But that, but I, I should say that it does get you up to a certain point. And then, you know, then comes the hard part, which is that last 5% where you actually make real parts. And I wonder when you were working on this to begin with, this was long enough ago, was 3d printing, uh, as readily available then it's come, I think it's come a long way since then. 3d printing at the time wasn't really relevant for us because we, mm-hmm we were developing everything around as much off-the-shelf hardware as we could get our hands on. Because, uh, you know, we, we didn't start this business with any money. It's not like we, we threw in, you know, $100,000 and started a company or had a big Kickstarter behind us. Mm-hmm. So we really focused on what can we do with readily available off-the-shelf stuff and, and go from there. That's a very interesting point because you wanted to mass produce something. So if you'd gone with 3D printing, then anything you created would have to be custom made, uh, either, uh, you know, in some you know, injection molding or some higher, some expensive process that has a lot of setup costs because of the multiples you'd have to make for it. Exactly. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, at, as time goes on and as we've moved through the process of, of, how our products are built. I mean, we've gone from the staples and glue guns to machine parts, and now we're actually at that part where we're we're, we're doing SLA models and and injection molded parts. But um, what, I gotta st- what's an SLA model? Uh, stereolithography. So it's it's oh oh it's basically a form of a three D printer that's a little bit more accurate and industrial than let's say a MakerBot. 
I see. So 3D printing, I mean, I know there's multiple methods. There's the kind, there's like the accretive kind. That's what, say, a MakerBot does, right? It lays down material, it builds it up layer layer. Is this, where does stereolithography fit into, uh, I mean, it has like a, a spool of filament that's used to melt points. Is stereolithography, is that the one with the sand or the sort of sandy basis that uses uh, laser sintering? Uh, no, it's it's a sintering process with a bath of the the polymer that a laser hardens ah. layer by layer. So it almost rises out the layer. It's, it rises, uh, the fluid keeps going up. It, it uh, hardens the layer and goes up higher and higher and higher until the product's done. Yeah, it's it's like sintering, only it's for a polymer as opposed to a metal, which is what sintering is. Oh, I see. That's very interesting. Oh, I didn't realize the difference. See, I'm, this is this is my learning curve too. 3D printing is so, I'm fascinated by it because it seems to solve some problems, but it's, you know, there's that stage, as you're talking about, like there's a stage between um, the scale of production. And I know talking to like the folks who made the Glyph uh, iPhone tripod adapter, they went through this whole learning curve where they started with something that was going to be 3D printed, and then they had to go to short run injection molding. Then they had to go to large, you know, high run <laughs> injection molding. And every step meant learning about a new kind of industry and, and working with different people. And so you're at a level now where you have your, you can, the SLAs, it's cheap enough to produce, or it's, or it's a, it's the right economics to produce these one at a time, this method for what you need, or is that still, it's not for prototyping. That's actually the production units are being produced through SLA. No, no, we've been using we've been using the SLAs to do the the rounds of prototyping with. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then so then it's going from there. So the next stage after SLA is is full on composite injection molding for for us at least. I see. Yeah, is that plastic or metal? I don't know if I know the process as well enough. I know about plastic injection injection molding. It's 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 a kind of plastic. Um, mm-hmm. It turns out, I mean this this whole this whole process of getting into injection molding has been a huge learning experience, especially to me from the outside. Who you know, I'm I'm a software geek on one end. And I'm, a, I'm a photographer and Greg comes up and says, do you know about, you know, whatever process I'm like, tell me about that. But what I've learned is that, you know, when, when you do injection molding, uh, you can just use plastic. And a lot of injection molding is just one kind of plastic or another, like, you know, Coke bottle plastic that you, you melt down and shove through, uh, th- through, a, through a mold. But then there's the higher end injection molding which is using composites of different kinds of polymers with glass fill or with carbon fiber or with all sorts of exotic kind of materials like the high-end plastics and I'm, you know I almost want to put air quotes around it but the high-end plastics that are used in in cars right those aren't just the same as your coke bottle injection molding it's it's a, it's a different material but it's the same kind of process some of the things that we're looking at involve some of these fancy materials being injection molded but we go from the process of hammering together prototypes then you know sla and then now right now as as we speak that injection molding process is is getting dialed in it's i think it's fascinating the number of choices that are available and i um i got this book recommended to me a few years ago that uh, i just picked up again i read half of it and set, set it down even my busy lifestyle apparently in children uh, it's called making it manufacturing techniques for product design by uh, chris leftery i'll put it in the show notes and it is uh, like two or three pages on every single kind of mechanical manufactured process and I, with I every Oh, isn't it? And I love, I mean, as someone who doesn't come from materials background, this gives me such insight into the kinds of things you can make and the complexity. And the fella has done, I mean, there's so much depth in it. He says, this is great if you want to make 50,000 or more. This one is okay if you want to make one of a kind or up to 500. And I would think that people trying to think about getting into any sort of industrial design, a book like this, if not this book, would be useful for them to understand what they're getting into before they, you know, commit to some production process. Right. And, and the differences between those processes have very different scales. Like, you know, when, when we talk through the history of the cinch, um, there's a very specific, important piece where we're using machine metal to get our manufacturing done. And that works really well at a particular scale, but we found that it didn't go to another scale. So each of these processes have their own little special sweet spot. Let's take a break to thank a sponsor. The other morning, a Twitter buddy asked me how to make a podcast. I gave her a few pieces of advice, and that evening she tweeted that her first episode was done, the website was set up, and she already was appearing in iTunes. I tweeted, how did you do that so fast? She said, Squarespace. Folks, I'm not kidding. This is a true story, but it doesn't surprise me. Squarespace makes it easy to do so many things in building and updating a website with rich media, including setting up and posting a podcast and getting it listed in iTunes in a matter of moments. You want a photo? Boom. 
You want to code in HTML? Bam. You like Markdown? Kablooey. You drag and paste items into a page, make galleries of photos, and publish. It literally couldn't be easier or more intuitive. Plus, with their best deal, you get unlimited bandwidth, a free domain, and support 24 hours every day. You can start a trial with no credit card. Go to squarespace.com slash new disruptors. When you're ready to sign up, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code new disruptors four to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com slash new disruptors offer code new disruptors numeral four. Now go start your own podcast. Now back to the show. Well, I, you mentioned the specific product. I realized we haven't actually talked except in the introduction about what you actually make. So it's, so the Luma Loop, that was your first product and it's tried to serve, uh, obviously a need that you had. What did it do for you that you, that you couldn't find and, and all the straps you'd tried and hated? Well, for me, um, the traditional camera strap was, I mean, I guess the, the issue for me with the traditional camera strap is it never was a comfortable way of carrying a camera. It never was, a useful way. The original camera strap, of course, came from these smaller cameras, like, you know, think old Leicas or old, old whatever cameras, which were very quite small with small lenses attached to them. And the idea for them is that you have a camera with two attachment points up on the top corners, and you can put a strap around your neck and carry it around in the, what some people call the lunchbox carry, right, with it bouncing off your chest or your stomach. And for a smallish camera, like the ones they used to make um, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that actually worked okay. But when you get into the big honking cameras like a Nikon D3S or a D4 or a Canon 1 series where you've got a battery grip and you've got these giant 70-200 lenses or you know, even bigger, although uh, then you get into weight concerns that aren't even appropriate for a strap. But when you get into these cameras with big lenses, when you carry it, in the way that you carried one of those old cameras, you know, you still have the mount points on the top of the camera and it's still trying to bounce against your chest or stomach and the weight of the lens pulls it over and it hurts your neck and it just doesn't work. So a lot of people will throw a camera strap over one shoulder or the other, but that still doesn't quite work all the time either. It's not as comfortable as one would need it. And yet you still want to be able to get the camera from how you carry it up to your eyes so you can use it. So because you want to be able to reach down and grab the thing when you need it and bring it up as opposed to having to manipulate sort of care and then also not worry about it falling off your shoulder too. Conceivably. Exactly. Exactly. So the loop, our, our first strap was all about that idea of, of letting the camera ride comfortably in a in a in an orientation where it could almost just ride up against your hip or your side and you could reach down and quickly bring it up to your face and it did so by being a sling it's kind of the the closest model would be a rifle sling which has been used by you know military peeps since the 1880s or whatever uh, where you have a static wet piece of webbing around your body diagonally and the camera rides on a on a slider so at rest, it's, a, uh, it's against your hip, but then when you reach down and grab it, the camera sliding, slides up around the, the sling up to your eye. And that was the loop. And I, you know, as I said earlier, I love mine. You have this great, it's got a tapered, comfortable fit over the shoulder. And um, I love the connection to the camera. And uh, I know there was an iteration there too, is that I've got the version I have now has a single button, a thumb release on the button. I remember there was an earlier version of this. You guys went through some, some change in how the camera connection uh, was made, didn't you? Yeah, we started out with the simplest possible connection for us, which didn't require manufacturing, which was using side release buckles, which would slide along the webbing. And um, the side release buckles worked really well. Those are we plat- never had one file. You yeah. have to push. Oh, and you have to. That's where you push in. But it's a two finger operation. You have to push it in on both with sides. Two fingers yeah. to slide. And it's a pl- and it's a plastic piece or a, a manufactured plastic piece. Right. Um, it's the same kind that you'll have on backpacks or all sorts of, of camping gear. And they make these things by by the truckload. And and it was super effective. We never had one fail either for us or for any of our customers. It was it was a great part. But one of the things that we we ran into with marketing it was people wanted some kind of a metal connection or uh, or uh, or what to them was perceived as a as a beefier connection and that's when especially if you're going to connect a camera to a single point which is what this this particular uh setup did it was using a single point on your camera instead of two points 
Well, that's right, because I could put a loop through. You had a separate part that I could either um, loop through one of the mount points on top of the camera or I preferably the mount point that I could screw into the bottom to the um, the uh, tripod mount hole. Right. Or a boss or whatever that's called. Yeah, the... the- that boss is as good of word as any. <laughs> I know this thing in the bottom. Yes, the the, <laughs> the, 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 the screw hole in the bottom. Um, well, wait a minute. But um, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> but uh, but people were perceiving the uh, plastic bits as maybe not as robust as they might want. So we 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 looked at it as a marketing problem at that point. We we thought we had a marketing problem in the fact that we were using a part that people were having acceptance issues with, um, not necessarily actual issues with but we looked at it and we we came up with a solution by working with a local shop to adapt their push button technologies or their push and now i sound like a software guy don't i yeah, they're like 50 years old <laughs> yeah so. these 50 year old um push button parts right that are also used in use by the military and we adapted uh that design we made we we used their push button assembly off the shelf and we made uh the other side of the assembly that would go onto your camera uh, we had that made, and we came up with a pretty good solution. That's the one you have, and uh, people loved it. It's got a neat thing you have where there's cork between uh, the parts so that I screw it in, I get a tight fit, and then I can push it a little more so I can not over-torque it, but tighten it a little bit, and it pushes against the torque or against the cork, and I can feel that I've got a really solid connection that then it seems to be, um, is there an anti- uh, like a anti-friction mount on the bottom side that attaches to the camera too? Is that part of the design? Yeah, well, it's... We want one side to grip the camera, but one side to have a little bit of slip so that as you tighten it down, instead of the whole gasket spinning as you tighten it, Mm -hmm. you want the gasket to compress. And so we have cork on one side, we have rubber on the other, and that differential between them lets the gasket compress. It's a really nice detail. It looks neat, too. It's a beautiful-looking part, and you know, even though you're hardly ever looking at it, but it has that feel. It's whenever I have to take it off to get in the battery compartment of a certain camera or I'm actually using a tripod, you know, I unscrew it and I put it back, I'm like, ah, you know, just that nice little, it's that fit of just, ah, that last little bit, and I know it's on. I don't have to sit there and kind of go, how hard can I tighten this? It gives me this sort of perfect haptic, I know it's real world, but perfect haptic sense of like, it's on. I don't need to worry about it anymore. Yeah, Greg did a really good job with coming up with the right two materials to use in that in that screw, that, that combination of rubber and, and, and cork. And I know that one of your goals, it's, or you have to tell me, actually, I think this was one of your goals, but it certainly was the reality, is is uh, you wanted to manufacture this locally. Mm. Um, and, and is that partly, I guess, I mean, tell me why. Was it, was it quantity? Was it control and quality? It's a combination of things. Mostly... We can get our heads around what's going on with our production at any given time. So, you know, we're not worrying about some shop, you know, 150 miles away or a couple states away. We can just drive out there and find out what's going on. And these are people you have can have uh, a stronger relationship with because they see your face. You actually go in, you can look at what they're doing. It's not a, pr- a purchase order from, you know, somewhere else. Exactly. and. Right. It also helps us develop our stuff because we can we can have an idea, we can walk in, we can say, hey, what's it going to take to make this thing? You know, what are the problems? We get them involved in the design process really early, and we use their guidance to sort of keep us from, from having some pie-in-the-sky idea that'll never be manufacturable. So there's another Portland company I know of, two Elevation Labs, that made the, the Elevation Dock that did the big Kickstarter in 2012. They set out to make everything locally, and I think they managed to make uh, nearly everything, but they had to find – I mean, they were buying aluminum. I don't know if they were buying it from the, the plant there near Portland, or uh, but it was – all the machining and all this, everything they did, except for, I think, like a few parts of USB cables they had to order from China, and then they had problems and had to get new versions. Some of the leads weren't made right and so forth. But they went through, you know, at a scale of a million-something dollars to, to machine everything locally. Obviously, your scale has not been quite that high yet, but are you finding issues with trying to get up to the scale you need um, by working with local uh, local firms? Well, we've we've certainly had our issues, but the first issue we had was actually not even scale at all. Our first big issue was actually um, competitive. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Tell me about that. So that's usually the concern people raise when they send stuff to China, but this was happening in your own backyard. Yeah, so, so this idea of using a rifle strap configuration isn't real. I mean, you know, when we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of, you know, we came up with this idea to use a rifle sling concept and all this. But really, especially for anything that dates back to the 1800s, um, 
this is all remixing, right? This mm-hmm. is remixing a very common standard off-the-shelf practices. And other people had done this, too. Uh, we certainly weren't the only people in this market. And uh, one of our competitors, um, one that's located not too far from where you live, um, scored a patent, managed to get a patent through. And we had seen that they had a patent pending, and we took this patent to our patent lawyers, and they looked at it and kind of laughed and giggled because they didn't think they would actually make it through. Even with all the silly patents around in software, where there are real problems with patent people not being able to understand all the complexity or understand how simple or complex a particular process might be, this one was looked at and it was determined that it should be you know, pretty much a no-brainer not to be patentable, and yet it was. And so we quickly um, – let's see. How far do I want to say this? Right, because you knew. I mean, I'll back up a second because I wrote about this at the time. I think you um, you alerted me to this, and I wrote for Boing Boing. I'll put the the link in about the issue. And it wasn't that you uh, you weren't trying to prevent them from selling anything. No. And when you went to and you had done due diligence, so you had made sure that the design that you and Greg were creating, you felt it was defensible, and there were un- you know probably unique innovations that you didn't try to patent in it as well. But that the basic design, the concept that you're going up against, would uh, would be defensible. So you were going. You weren't. I mean, I know there's. Some Sometimes people, there'll be simultaneous invention. Someone doesn't do the diligence. They don't know there's a similar product. Sometimes there's, you know, well, it's iffy, but you, I mean, I've looked at the patent. You can go to the USPTO website and look at patents from the 1800s for that look very much or in a function, which is all you can't patent an exact design. I mean, you can, there's the trade dress, I know, and things like that. But right. you, the function that was patented, you can look at patents from the 1800s that show exactly the sort of free range action with a loop and so forth that existed before. So you went all this with, with good faith, oh, yeah. it seems to me, and, and good diligence. And the USPTO, even though on the functional side, they're usually better about this, they granted a, a competitor a patent for the product. So you're, you had an issue of how you respond right. when you, because in a, and remind me of the detail, they, you hadn't, there was no lawsuit filed. There was no lawsuit filed. We had, um, we, we basically got a very, 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 very strong cease and desist that wasn't just aimed at the company in particular. It was also aimed at us as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so attempting to pierce the corporate veil and all that. So we, we, we had gotten a very strong indication from them that they were they they would take this all the way to a lawsuit. Mind you, we got that before they ever even got their patent. Right. This came before right. the patent. And then But then you got word you got word the patent had been uh, right. had been actually accepted we, or had been We got word that the patent had been had been applied and we we, we evaluated our situation and so, I mean, Greg said that when we started this, we started it with very little money. I mean, shockingly little money. Um, we're talking low five figures worth of money to, to, to start up our company. We've always run it very, very lean. So it's not like we had a war chest. It's not like we had, you know, uh, much of, of anything in the company. It was always about working as, as leanly and as minimally as possible. And you started this before Kickstarter was really a force or even existed, right? Yeah, this is yeah. pre this is- And so crowdfunding wouldn't have been a, a concept. I know um, I can – I'll back up just a second before we talk about the patent thing is I remember when you were in the final stages of design, it was it was kind of cool because you were seeding out straps to people you knew. And, and um, I don't – I got one early. I think you gave me one early. A disclosure. FTC <laughs> required disclosure. I have some free Luma Labs products, which I love, and I recommend to other people because <laughs> I love them so much. But um, I got an early strap, and I think my friend Jeff Carlson did too, and – you know, it changed how I took pictures. So all of us who got them, we would say, hey, we got one of these uh, as a promotional thing, but boy, do we like this. And I started taking my camera out more. And so you see to this through the great word of mouth thing, people you knew and people who are, um, you know, opinion makers, but, but folks you knew who were opinion makers and crowdfunding wasn't available and you didn't have to go a traditional marketing route because you could reach people who uh, took it and appreciated it for what it was and then talked about it. Right, right. We had, we had an initial kind of mover advantage in the fact that, um, I've been blogging for ever since, well, before there were blogs. And, you know, just knowing a large number of people let us actually get the word out. So we, we kind of had a lot of the advantage, a lot of what Kickstarter gives you, except for, of course, the cash flow. <laughs> right. Um, and we get that Gruber hit, which kind of. Yeah. Yeah. One, we, one, we weren't one, even going to launch, and then that happened, and we were like, well, I guess we better start selling them. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, um, so yeah, if you if you can get a link from John, I Gruber, hear that a lot cool. on this podcast. By the way, it's, it's the, the fireball effect is uh, is is both uh, wonderful and dangerous yeah. at the same time. Well, for us, it was magnificent. I mean, it launched our, our company and it got everything going. But um, yeah, so so to to kind of pop back, we 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 we've never run this company with a huge war chest. That wasn't our intent. So when we looked at what we were going to do to respond to this patent being filing and by being having been awarded to a company we knew was already going to be aggressive and had no interest in licensing or any of the traditional kind of good faith company or or good companies playing together with each other you know a lot of times when a company will get a patent uh, and they come after you they'll make an offer for you know you can license our technology from us you know, we just want a piece of your pie. Right. And there's some folks who do defensive patents, especially, I mean, that was, you know, Amazon has always claimed, uh, my, my disclosure there is I worked there in 96, 97 and wrote a patent for them at, at Jeff Bezos's beque- uh, request. And Amazon's has always maintained their patents were to prevent other people from preventing them to do things. And they've only enforced, I think, their one-click patent once, even if it's a bad patent as, you know, and even if you hate, as I do, business method patents, all that aside, there's one thing to do defensive patenting where you say, we don't want to be prevented prevented in our business from doing something that we know we can do. That's one side. But then there's uh, offensive patents that (laughs) I guess you could use in both sense of the word, not to be rude, but it's that patents that are used specifically to prevent other people in industry from engaging what the patent holder, one hopes, believes is a unique innovation that they want protection for. And in this case, you believe that was not a unique innovation and and had patent history to show it. But that's this is the the flip side of that is somebody actually saying, we're going to use this as as a way to prevent other people from making a similar product. Right. And so when we were faced with that, we, you know, we consulted our lawyers and we were like, okay, how much is it going to take to actually defend ourselves? And what we quickly learned was, sure, we had a case. I mean, we had more than a case. Um, the other thing we learned, it was it would be years in the making and uh, basically it would take a lot of money to do and we could uh, pretty much sacrifice our company in the process. Right, because um, it could it could take. I don't want to put numbers in your mouth, but I've heard it could take you know two hundred thousand dollars to easily to get a patent overturned using the processes that are available without even going to a lawsuit, like just using the patent process that exists to get patents reviewed and overturned. Right. That's. Uh I mean, yeah, that's that's the magnitude of of what we understood it to that's be as good, well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so. You know, we had we had a couple of choices. It's like, do we fight it and have this evil, evil fight to deal with? Not evil in the sense of what was happening out there, but evil to our own psyches. I mean, I think one of the things that people underestimate when they when they talk about, oh, patent fight, we'll fight that, is when you get into a legal battle. It's it's like any legal thing. Nobody really wins in the end, even if you do win. You know, the classic story is the fellow who um, alleged to create the variable speed windshield wiper. I'm sure Greg knows this story. But yeah, I don't. Oh, my don't. gosh. Well, they made a movie is, about it. There's a movie. About it. It's a terrible. It's a horrible story in that the guy he used a what in the 1950s. He created a design that well, part of the reason that the lawsuit went on for 50 years. There were suits for 50 years was that some of what he did was standard practice at the time and some of it was unique. And the question was, I think, that was disputed was how much could he control the design of using certain kinds of principles that were in wide circulation. So the lawsuit went on the rest of his life. He litigated for 50 years. He got settlements from different companies, litigated against the rest. His son, at least, and maybe some other children became lawyers and litigated most of their careers on this. (laughs) And I believe he died having not won the final suit, but maybe his estate did. And you think, really, really, do you need to spend, maybe you get to go down that road for a year or two, and then you're five years in, you're thinking, well, this will surely be over soon, but 50 years, and you know, there is a slippery slope where you, you dedicate your life right. to defending your right either to an idea or to use an idea, and I can understand why you might not want to go down that path. Well, I, just, I don't get the point of that. I yeah. mean, I, if you're a smart enough guy to come up with a variable speed windshield wiper or anything... Wouldn't you think? I mean, you know, it's like what we did. We looked at the cost to go fight this thing and said, how much is it going to cost us to 
well, you know, we had the cinch. I had the cinch sort of in the back of my mind. I had a couple hacked up prototypes. This is your next strap design, right? So this is your transition. Is I remember talking to Duncan at the time, and it was the patent thing. You're thinking about what your response would be, but you had a, you had your next generation or or alternative design that you were already looking at, and you were thinking about putting in production. In any case, yeah, it was, it was going to be a second product to accompany the 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 loop. The loop being a single point camera strap. We were looking at a double point camera strap. So it attaches on one of the camera mount points in like like the bot and the uh, the tripod mount, right? You put it in right. two places. Right. And so it wouldn't it doesn't freely slide. I have a cinch too, thank you very much. And the cinch You're welcome. the cinch doesn't slide, right? The cinch is something you want to keep it really close to your body. Yeah, the cinch the, the idea of the cinch is that it's it still allows you some flexibility in maneuvering the camera. You still it still gives you enough flexibility to carry the camera in a comfortable way and yet get it up to your eye. But it's really its forte was really to keep the camera a little more snug. So the loop, lots of people loved the loop and the way it worked, but it was it was something that the camera would actively move on you. Since you're kind of holding on to the camera on a single point, the camera could swing, it could sway, it moved rapidly and easily around your body. So if you tried to, say, climb a ladder or ride a motorcycle or uh, bend down and pick up your kid, um, the free willing uh, nature of, of, of a single point sling kind of works against you in those in those situations. And so I will confess to having bashed a child in the head <laughs> lightly with a camera at least once or twice with the loop. Exactly. They're they're strong. They can. They're, they're, yeah, little kids are made of rubber, it's but you don't want you don't want to hear that. It's bad marketing. <laughs> bad marketing. Bad marketing. I love your loop, but I keep bashing my child in the head with it. But the, I mean, that's right. So the advantage is I can swing it up really rapidly because it's loose. Right. But it does. Yeah, and that's right. In cer- so in certain circumstances, you don't want a camera to be sort of floating there you want to be able to pull it up when you want it but you also want it to be tight so it's not moving around while you're moving right and so the cinch was really designed to answer the question of how do we sacrifice just a little bit of that ability to move the camera freely in exchange for being able to hold it closer to your body and as we worked through it we really kind of fell in love with the concept especially when we came up with the the idea of a fast uh, strap length adjustment gizmo that we we came up with, so you've got a you've got a, a, a like a tab you yeah. can pull it's, right. That's the so leather. We'll all the links in the show notes. So people can see the picture of it, but you pull the tab and that lets you immediately snug it back up. Right, and and the secret isn't so much in the tab as it is in the way that the strap goes through uh, the hardware of the tab. It lets you just move that thing back and forth, and it gives you enough length adjustment that you can have the camera kind of loose on you. And loose enough to where you can easily bring it up to your eye and the whole strap moves around you. Or you can snug it down and that kind of cinches, hence the product name, it cinches the camera against you. So then you can do something silly like get on the back of a bike of, of, of a scooter in in Athens, Greece and go zipping down the road in between traffic and not worry about your camera flying out and hitting cars, um, which was actually a tested case, by the way. <laughs> and now for a word from one of our sponsors. I know that I love a dashboard because it summarizes a whole bunch of information that I can then take in at a glance. The folks at Panic developed Status Board for the iPad to let you create a dashboard from all sorts of data streams. You can link to email and Twitter accounts, your calendar, and RSS feeds, and then display a count of unread messages, tweets that mention you, a list of the latest news, a ticker that shows upcoming events, and plenty more. With a very little programming effort, you or your company can add your own data sources so you could, for instance, see your website traffic in real time or tie into a project tracking system. People have already done amazing things with Status Board, some of which you can see at the Panic blog. It's $10. For a $9.99 in-app purchase, you can also send the output over AirPlay to an Apple TV or via an iPad HDMI adapter to an HDTV set. Visit panic.com slash status board for more information and a link to buy. Now back to the show. Greg, tell me what you learned between the, the uh, Luma loop and the cinch that you applied to this. I mean, I noticed, for instance, there's four metal parts uh, in the cinch as opposed to the one point of contact um, in the, uh, the, one, the, the one button in the, in the final version of the Luma loop. What, what did you learn that you applied in, in creating a second one? The metal hardware on the cinch really wasn't, it, it was actually more of a question of speed. You know, we had the whole patent kerfuffle. The cinch was a product that was kind of on the back burner. You know, we'd seen, during, at the time, there were a lot of competitors to the loop coming out. Single point camera slings had gotten really popular. 
And did you have the problem though? Did you have Chinese ripoffs happening at that point that were like identical? Because I know a lot of companies tell me about that. We never had a Chinese company rip off the loop. We've had we've seen hardware out of China that rips off the cinch. Interesting, interesting. Which I was kind of proud of, actually. <laughs> Imitation, sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw the picture. And I was like, hey, that's my part out of China. <laughs> that's right. You have to keep innovating. You should see the Glyph guys uh, at the XOXO conference that Greg, you were at uh, last uh, September in Portland. Uh, they had pictures during their talk of showing the Glyph, their unit, and then some of the ripoffs. I think they showed slides of that. Maybe it's on their site that were essentially identical, and like even down to the way they cut out the. Uh, the hanger card for retail display it was funny, but I love that that you that you're flattered by it because it means you created something popular enough. It was worth them investing the time to make a duplicate of it and then get it sold in the markets here. Yeah, well, I mean, plus I don't really worry much about Chinese ripoffs. Mm-hmm. I mean, those the people that buy the eBay fifteen dollar Chinese ripoff of your product, they were never going to buy your product. Yeah, they're not your customer. That's really it's really good. But so the but the so you hit the uh, this is that point. You so the patent thing comes up. You find the patents granted. You have this design in your back pocket. You're working on. Uh, you said, all right, we're gonna. What did you decide to do about the Luma Loop? Then what was the what, what happened? Well, we 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 took. I mean, we got some really good advice from our lawyer, and it wasn't the kind of advice that you would normally expect to get from a legal professional. It was actually awesome advice, and he he <laughs> he told us, look. You two are smart. You came up with a product. I'm sure you can come up with something else if you decide not to go into this legal quagmire. And we took his advice to heart because we, you know, Cinch had Cinch was in the back pocket, and Greg and I looked at each other and said, "Well, what do we want to do? Do we want to end up in hell, or do we want to, you know, move on and innovate and do what do do something a little more fun, which is actually make stuff, not play legal games." So Greg went on and 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 tried to uh well he didn't try he did to bring uh cinch to market as fast as possible because we were looking at a a situation where okay in order to comply or not get into further legal trouble uh we had to shut down production of the loop immediately and stop selling it um and that's what we did and then immediately the company was basically in stasis until we had the next product so greg took it as a mission to get the cinch out as expediently as possible and and when you say back pocket, I mean it was a it was a hacked up rifle sling. <laughs> it was in the uh, staples and, and hot glue gun phase. You got it wasn't even fully developed. I mean, it, it only really got. I think the the testing is this going to work thing only got done. Interestingly enough, I sewed up a prototype one night with neoprene on the shoulder pad and went to go test it at the Occupy Portland <laughs> thing the night that the police were going to go evict them. I figured that's going to be a good test of a camera strap and how it works in a kind of dynamic weird environment and that was the night i I decided it worked that's very funny so trial by fire Trial by fire so almost literally so every every bit about the manufacturing of the first cinch was about getting it to market as fast as possible and that's actually why you see the metal parts there as fast and without without a huge upfront capital investment which Mm -hmm. a plastic injection mold requires oh so these were machine parts then they were all CNC machined. Interesting. Oh, I see. So that lets you, ah, uh, ah, uh, because of the injection mode, there's the time delay and going through all the, the stages. In this case, you go, how fast do you go from um, a 3D design on screen to getting a, a thing CNC rounded? And the, well, the beautiful thing about working with a CNC part, it, it's very low stress because you go get your parts. And if there's a problem, you change the code on the CNC machine a little bit <laughs> and boom, you're making parts. The Having just gone through this with injection molded parts right now, the stress is you spend all this time designing and massaging and, and getting all the kinks out, and then you get the part. And if there's something wrong with a part, changing an injection mold is... Yeah. Uh, it's doable. It's not It's not quite as, as a one-shot deal as, as it used to be in the past. But it's if you want to make a change, it's it's a big deal. It's an, because if there's a lot of, I mean, that's an upfront cost, right? Every CNC uh, part you route costs about the same um, after you make the design. But uh, with injection molding, you have so much, um, I don't know, in the printing industry, they call it make ready. You've got all the setup and overhead cost of making the molds and getting it worked and tested out with the company. And then they have to produce some number for it to be worthwhile for you to have gone that route. Right. So that was the equation that we, we used exactly in a, in a nutshell to, re, to, to spin it around. 
um, instead of going the high investment route, we went the super low investment route. And we, we, Greg was basically spent some time at the machine shop while they went through, you know, eight or 10 iterations of the part in rapid succession. And then it was ready to go and we were ready to go. And the entire process between deciding, yes, we're going to go for a cinch and actually bringing it to market was 48 days. Yeah, it was Crazy. crazy I remember you sent me one and I thought they must have been further along than I thought, but you weren't, you just pulled it (laughs) off really fast. That that was, that was a necessity being, uh, being a very good push. And I guess, you know, the business way of saying it is that we traded, you know, production, you know, per unit production cost for upfront cost. Right. Right. You don't want to get out of people's heads too, is that you don't want people to think Luma Labs, oh, that's the company that shut down when they had a patent dispute. It's like, no, Luma Labs, the company that pivoted on a dime and came out with a new version of a strap within a few weeks of having a patent issue. Right. And, and so we got the, we got the strap out. It's a beautiful design. I mean, the one, another aspect of the metal that makes it really nice in, in addition to the fact that manufacturing is, is straightforward, even though it has a high unit cost, is that it looks really great. It's distinctly different from the other one, right. so it had a, that feel. And I'll tell you, so you know, my complaint about the cinch was I was using lightweight cameras. I'm now using heavier cameras. For my lightweight camera, I couldn't pull it up. It didn't have enough um, uh, like uh, counterweight effect to it, and it worked better with the Luma Loop. So now I have a mirrorless uh, Sony uh, Next 6, and I think I need to keep getting bigger and bigger lenses, because the heavier the camera is, the better it works <laughs> the cinch for being able to use its weight to, to slide it around my body. To take, to take care of that, yeah. Now, you have some news. Now, we're recording this before, uh, you know, in, in uh, early April, but you, uh, you have some news about uh, a development on the manufacturing front. Well, yeah. So, as, we've, as, as we were alluding to, you know, the trade-off with metal parts is that uh, it's fast to get into production, but it's a high-per-unit piece. And what we found was the cinch was popular enough to totally saturate the amount of metal we could have made especially in an environment you know when you're talking about local uh machine shops in the pacific northwest and you're a small manufacturer you're always a small person at the table because there's one extremely huge company up north uh boeing who um has the habit of always needing stuff immediately and they pay good money and and oh so they buy the capacity of all the machine exactly, shops suddenly exactly oh. so so between boeing uh in the machine area and there, there's some other players in this in this market as well but boeing since they're so big it's easy to point to because we run into them everywhere i will um, never be able to fly a boeing without getting bumped <laughs> <laughs> um so we, we we couldn't make the metal parts fast enough and we had a continual all through last year you know we were running consistently you know two three four weeks behind our order stream and that was subpar because, um, you know, what, what you learn very quickly is that customers really like to be able to buy something and have it in their hands quickly. And, they, you know, that making everybody wait for weeks on end is, is not a happy place to be for anybody. And you also can't do any marketing. Yes. Why, why bother doing any promotion if you're just going to drive people to a website? With nothing to sell. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we had a successful product all last year that we couldn't make enough of and we couldn't market it because that would only create more demand. And, uh, you know, we, we, we looked at all the mechanics of how this went and we finally realized that what we were going to have to do was take that big next step and actually go to a process that would scale. And, and, and so Greg did a hell of a lot of research and found an interesting uh, group of people here in the local area that does does injection molding, and we've been working with them for the past um, how long? Five months. Like five or six months to get to the point where we can take all of our parts that were made in metal and make them using not just plastic, but you know, fancy composite um, pieces that are super strong and super awesome, but still lightweight and and have all the characteristics that we really want to have out of a Luma product. And as we record this, we're in the final stages of tuning the molds to make the pieces. And by the time the show comes out, we should be in full production and, and, and shipping. Oh, that's exciting. So this also, so part of the change too, is you've committed to a higher volume that you're going to produce because you're making more parts and you know, you have, it sounds like you've got stacked up demand you want to be able to fulfill and then expand on. Yes, at that's least a great position to be in. At least it feels like we have the stacked up demand. I mean, you know, the the, the 
the rubber will meet the road when we actually get out there. But, you know, the support mailbox that we have is full of when can I get my hands on the product? Hey, when can I, I I'm going on a trip next week. Can I, can I get one? And so everyone's going on a trip next week. Everybody goes on a trip next week. <laughs> it's always spring break somewhere. Yeah, it's spring. We, we either have people going to Hawaii next week or we have uh, awesome photographers going to places like Cambodia or Laos or we have soldiers going on deployment. Um, everybody's always leaving next week. So now you'll be able to. So the quad. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. I know that you're you're privately held firm. You're smaller, you know, smaller business. But uh, it's interesting that you have to that that even in that position, you've got to get to a point where you can manufacture enough of these uh, these raw parts. And I assume that if these are the the sticking point, you've got enough capacity locally for the sewing part that that hasn't been holding you up. No, the sewing part wasn't wasn't the issue at all. Um, the sew shop that we use can can handle a lot more. They handle this throughout the entire run of the loop and. They they would actually love us to bring them more capacity. Our our entire bottleneck was basically getting little tiny machine parts made in volume. So here's the question: When you this is always that the next inflection point is the it's sort of in house outhouse in house outhouse. And as you get bigger and bigger, things come in, they go out, they come in, they go out. And the question is: Do you wind up you know building a sewing operation of your own at some point? Will this scale to a point? Do you want it to scale to a point where outsourcing it, it winds up being less cost effective than having some people working you know around the clock for you? It's a question I constantly think about in the back of my mind. You know, there's a lot of risk to bringing stuff like that in-house, especially because the sewing equipment that we require is really quite heavy duty. This isn't like something you can make on a sewing machine at home. These are done on big industrial computer-controlled pattern tacking machines. So you've got a lot of sunk cost to make that next step. Yeah, each one of those machines is like ten grand. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, it's something we kind of want to bring in-house on some level because the nice thing about those big $10,000 pattern tacking machines is that they're relatively easy to use. Mm-hmm. And it, it, would not, it does not take sort of the skilled sewing that a lot of outerwear does, but it does take a lot of attention to detail and a big upfront capital cost. I also think if I know you well enough, Greg, which I do from Twitter, that if you had one of these machines in house or multiple, you would find other things to do with them too. <laughs> I'd make a lot of belts <laughs> with really weird machine buckles. I, yeah. I, well, I'll tell I'll tell listeners the joke is you and I wind up on Twitter talking. I'll I'll say something in passing, and you will figure out the way it can be manufactured. It seems like within about five minutes, and we're trying to figure out if it's a viable business <laughs> to, to go into. <laughs> yeah, I do that. I do that all the time, and it's weird because. Uh, you know, you were talking, uh, you know, before we started this podcast about people being interested in this sort of topic of making things. And every day I've got people asking me about how they can make stuff and they have this idea and they want to see it happen. It's a, it's a mystery to most of us if we haven't been, if you don't have the right, well, I think you have to have the right kind of brain that can think about these sorts of problems to start with, but then it's all this process. And I've been fascinated by the movement to maker spaces where not, I guess not just the 3D printing is cool. I like the aspect of it and how cheap and interesting it is. But I think it's that, um, I did a, a podcast several weeks ago with Maker House, which just opened in Seattle. So, and the fact that they have a wood shop, a machine shop and top and like the highest end 3D printers I think you can buy now, and a materials library, and um, teachers and so forth. They're not just saying, hey, we got a bunch of 3D printers, you can print out your design. It's like, we have a way in which we can teach you and give you access to stuff that no one small company could afford or would want to buy, but you can have access to tools that you know you need to be grossing millions of dollars a year to see. And then people start learning how to do more of that. How do I make this thing? Uh, they get better at that task. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of interesting because... I'm seeing a lot more industrial gear going into people's homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go on a couple websites and there's people that have full-scale vertical CNC machines sitting in their garage. The The interest and knowledge that people have in these is getting higher. This is like the DLSR of the <laughs> of the industrial design side, right? Is that, It's something I was talking to uh, the folks at Smug Mug oh, last summer, one of the heads there, about the amount of data they were seeing. And they had had this huge jump of like, I think it was from four petabytes to seven in the space of uh, just several months that they were storing, even though they'd seen growth over time. And they said the, the key reason was, and Duncan, you will know which camera this was, there was a high-end camera that had, is it a four, I don't know, 20-something 
megapixel mm -hmm. camera and and a bunch of prosumers like uh, clearly tens of thousands of prosumers had spent many thousands of dollars to buy this camera and they were suddenly all uploading raw images in uh, from this camera and that was some of the that was you know some petabyte of that multi petabyte growth was because yeah. people were trading up that would be the canon 5d 5D Mark II to 5D Mark III transition. <laughs> That's one, right, exactly. And suddenly... Day. All your file sizes are suddenly double. Yeah, and they're, you know, it doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of... I mean, I shouldn't say not much of a difference, but it's the quality is not doesn't uh, compare directly with the increase in storage requirement. But it's fascinating to know that the prosumer thing is happening even with, uh, God, with CNC equipment. That's hilarious because that's, I mean, there's so many years that people bought, you know, routers and all dado cutters and all the stuff, the, this old house and Norm Abrams kind of thing. And it, there's a long tradition in America and I'm sure in other countries, you know, in America, people having these incredible workshops in their houses. But, but Greg, that's fascinating that people are starting to, they're moving to the next generation and the workshop is, is, um, is computer controlled? Well, the cost on this equipment has come down. Uh, pretty, you know, a lot of these guys, what they're doing is they're buying a CNC machine that lived on a production floor in a in a big shop for most of its effective production life. And that machine, you know, they're they're really beefy, they're well built, and so when you put it into a home shop just for a guy that wants to tinker around, it's got plenty of life still left in it, and you buy it for pennies on the dollar of what they cost new, and. You know, CNC machines are great because they're they they are to the manufacturing world what you know, I guess what like a roux is to French cooking. I mean, <laughs> every other process starts with a CNC mill. You know, every everything that you you touch either came out of a CNC machine or was made on a tool that was made in a CNC mill. The thing I'm hearing more of too is that 2D laser cutters are becoming not only the, I mean they're becoming very cheap, but they can also cut through thicker and thicker materials. And that the kinds of routine tasks that might put somebody off in making a product where there's a lot of 2D cutting, you have to hire people, you have to use templates and jigs and things like that. Now you buy a relatively affordable 2D cutter, and suddenly you can churn out the the boring part really fast. Yes, yes. Yeah, we actually did that. The first loop was all done on a CNC knife. All the leather pieces and the neoprene pieces. That is so fascinating. Well, this is interesting because I feel like we're you're talking the way you talk about this. You know, at the tail end of this, you're, you know, we start with talking about a company founded to make products, but on this tail end, we're, these tools we're talking about, this is the kind of thing that leads to new cottage industries, right? Is that if you don't need to have a giant industrial system that's in a huge billion dollar factory, but you can actually replicate enough of it in a home in a home business so you can have the equivalent of like you know i'm here in my basement running my uh editing and podcasting business if i could then also fire up a cnc router and a and a 3d printer and be able to do stuff that was comparable enough that i could get started or sell on etsy or whatever i'm doing that seems like a fascinating development in in business well i think uh, you know i'm gonna buy a cnc machine as soon as i can because i think it it's fantastic to be able to have an idea and produce it and be able to get to that Etsy scale and see if you have any demand for it, see if you can build up a market. I think part of the problems is, is when you go beyond that Etsy scale, things begin to get difficult. That's when you need more expertise to ramp up to that next scale of manufacture. Exactly. Manufacturers don't want to hear any number less than 1,000 when you want to go produce something. They really want to hear 10,000. You know, they really want to get that, that call from right. Casey at Elevation Labs. Hey, I, some people on the internet just ordered 10,000 of my new Elevation docks. They love that. American manufacturers, though, generally don't want to have you walk in their shop door saying, hey, I need 500 of these every couple months. That, that's, a, that's a tough sell. I think one of the, the interesting things for me as a software guy is you, know, you, you experience this with podcasts. You know, when, you, when you write a piece of software and you put it out there, the internet is this magnificent copying machine that makes the rest of the process of distribution and scaling straightforward and easy. I mean, at times it's super easy, and at times it's just straightforward, and you have to figure out how you're going to scale something. But anymore, when you can put your podcast on S3 and front it with CloudFront or do any of these things, that part is very well solved. Whereas in the physical world, getting from that I make five parts to I make 500 parts do I make 5,000 parts? There's, that, there's, there's a disconnect in that scaling that a lot of smart people like Greg could really help people out with. It's, it's like the donut hole. Yeah. You want to make five, that's easy. You want to make 5,000, that's doable. You want to make 500, and eh, no. 
Right. I, I hear this over and over. I mean, not that your opinion would be unique here, but I hear, do hear it over and over that that is that that's how do you get over that hop? And uh, Chris Anderson of uh, 3D Robotics, um, we talked back in October before he left Wired Magazine to take over the company. And that was his thing is they'd gone through, I think, four or five swaps where they were doing stuff like a toaster oven to, you know, burn in circuit boards or whatever. And then they went up here, then they're doing pick, you know, they bought their pick and place machines and, and you know, in sort, that was that in, out, in, out. It's like every layer they'd like, okay, we can't afford to do this. So we have to hire a firm. Holy cow. We're making enough quantity. Now we need to buy the machinery. Wait, we've outstripped our machinery. Now we need to outsource. And they're now, now they're at the scale where they'll never outsource anything substantial again, because they, they produce enough in house, but getting over that first hump from the, the shop, the home shop or the small business shop into mass scale manufacturers seems like there's a big market to uh, to work on there. Well, you know, it's kind of weird. It's uh, they used to be something you could do really easily, but because of China, a lot of that, a lot of that skill set, a lot of the the mid level shops that would do that work for you are gone. Yeah, they're they're they do a lot of that expertise has moved to China where they can cook up some number for you overnight uh, immediately. I mean, that's the, that's the same, that's the same flexibility that Tim Cook talks about when he talks about manufacturing in, in China is not necessarily that they're cheaper. They just can be responsive. Right. That's, and I, I, we hear that a lot too, is that it's, uh, it's not that we couldn't do any of it here, but it's no longer, it's not just the labor issue. It's that the market disappeared. So even as labor costs have gone up in China substantially and uh, you know, the gas or oil price fluctuations made it expensive to move shipping containers around and that disappeared for a bit. But if oil prices go up and labor prices continue to go up there, it's not necessarily that it will be so much cost effective. It's just, they have the capability and ours has disappeared. Right. Well, we still have the capability. You know, if you look at, at American machine shops, for example, they're making amazing things. Mm-hmm. Um, the the shop that does all of our work um, makes you know parts for aircraft, but their big thing is this titanium knee replacement. That's one of the most beautiful pieces of machining I've ever seen. It's the kind of part that will never get made in China. And most machine shops, the job shops, the the guys who you can walk in the door and say, "Hey, can you make you know my widget for me?" Uh, their staple is really high-end, high-value parts like that. Right. And that's the only thing keeping most of them you know, around at this point. The problem is, is if you're on that maker scale, you don't need the world's most advanced machining or really most any process because, you know, again, you're not usually pushing the bounds of materials and construction techniques. You're using readily available processes and materials to make a product that fills a, a market niche that the bigger companies just don't for whatever reason. It sounds like we're going to be hearing more and more about that area because uh, if that's the missing piece, then usually that's where markets rush into uh, to fill them. It would be good for everyone if that happened. Guys, thank you so much for sharing your story and your expertise about this. I think this is very enlightening for those of us who are who are not in the industrial design side of things to understand the complexity, but also the possibilities. Thanks for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. 